0: Welcome to the Lover's Hole, where we are rereading the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. As always, you're with Mike and with Ian. And I might add that my particular friend, Ian Bradley, is you know, really striving for a degree of
1: authenticity that we have not no. yet achieved on the show. Ian, tell us where you're recording this episode from. I'm sitting in a hotel that is in a manor house in a part of Sweden that is a short trip outside of Stockholm, and I have found all sorts of crazy connections to this week's chapter of The Letter of Mark.
0: So... While you know Ian has one of his serfs run off to grab a little reindeer meat, you know, <laughs> what, what, would you fill us in Ian, on where we were last week and where we're going this week in perhaps our first half of chapter
1: nine? Indeed, thank you, Mike. So let's get caught up. Last time, Jack had gone from missing his tide and burying his father to becoming a member of Parliament and getting what sounded like an agreement to be returned to the Navy list, almost unhoped for, unhoped for restoration for Jack. And meanwhile, Stephen had been to see The Marriage of Figaro and was struck by the Countess forgiving the unfaithful count in the finale, in the final scene there of The Marriage of Figaro. But He seemed to think that his trip to Diana, seeking forgiveness, was doomed to fail as he left the leopard and rejoined the surprise headed for Stockholm. And Mike, this time, as we turn the first pages of the last chapter of Letter of Mark, Stephen is leaving the surprise for Stockholm. He's gonna replenish his laudanum. He's hoping to find Diana. He's planning to return the Blue Peter and we think attempt to save his marriage. All of that in time for Jack and the surprise to get back from Riga with their Poldavi ready for their sails and to be ready to head off to South America. So, Mike, so far as we enter this last chapter, the wind has not been fair for Stephen, for ships, for balloons. So we're all on tenterhooks here. Will Stevens' premonitions and omens and dread finally prevail.
0: We've had this sense and like you said, my gosh, it just keeps, you know, while things are going so great for Jack, better and better, we're really wondering about Stephen in specific and and Stephen and Diana more broadly there. So Stephen comes into Stockholm. He's he's riding on that pilot galley that was alongside, you know, last time when Jack woke him up from his dream and O'Brien writes once the sun had risen, the day was fresh and brilliant. The breeze, though contrary, was full of life. And by the time Stephen reached dry land, he had almost entirely detached himself from that other world, the world of his dream with its extraordinary beauty and its potential danger, its half-understood threat of extreme danger to come." So. Clearly, we're right back into this chapter, as you had said, in with Stephen's premonitions here. And Stephen, he checks into his hotel. He goes to his banker's correspondent, gets some Swedish notes and directions to the best apothecary in the capital. He goes to the apothecary, which is is close by the bank. And there are kind of all the usual jars of, of the potions and medicines and you know, Mm. this kind of ancient pharmaceutical shop here. But there's also a variety of monsters and uncommon animals and spirits, as well as a number of reconstructed skeletons, including an Ardvar. And as Stephen looks at a bottled kangaroo fetus and is about to touch it, a small man with a sharp troll-like voice asks him, what's his business being there? And Stephen turns kind of assesses this man and in his best Latin asks for a small bottle of laudanum and wonders if the aardvark is for sale. And so the guy I think realizes that this is no common, even though I'm sure Stephen looks a bit ragworn worn, having been woken from his dream and probably slept in the same clothes for a last week. Um, And they talk about, you know, the collections in this shop. Stephen's really taken by them. And Stephen shares his experience as a a natural philosopher and a naval surgeon. And the proprietor talks about his dream to travel. And he says that he's really had to settle for traveling vicariously through the sailors that bring him, you know, the interesting things that they find. And that he does commission some of the more intelligent surgeons mates to bring him in, in O'Brien's words, botanical specimens, foreign drugs, curious teas, infusions, and the like. And Stephen says that you know the proprietor's way of traveling may be far better than Stephen's, given all the things that Stephen has seen but has not been allowed to explore. Um, <laughs> and as they're talking about rare medicines from around the world, Stephen asks if he might happen to have the coca leaves of Peru, he says. Indeed, he does. And so Stephen orders up a pound of those because you know, you know, whenever you're buying a small bottle of Laudanum, cocaine's a nice second to go with that. Oh, absolutely,
1: absolutely <laughs> made for each other, right?
0: And then to round off the great service in the shop, Stephen says that he'd like to walk out to this specific area outside of town. You know, he's, he's sort of getting at Diana's house here. Uh, the proprietor draws him a map and talks about these unusual iris, the pseudocorus, and a tuberculated swan that he'll see on the way.
1: Oh yeah, that sounds a bit a bit ominous, doesn't it? It, it maybe there's a little bit of an Easter egg here with this iris pseudocorus. Um it's a called a yellow flag iris and Back in the day, and these days as well, the yellow jack with the Q flag, which is a yellow rectangle, is hoisted on ships indicating that they are in quarantine because they have a potentially deadly disease aboard. And that, that sounds like too good of a coincidence to be true. And I'm also wondering, Mike, there's a bit of national stereotyping going on here. You know, we know from the canon that people who are Scottish have comic accents. People who are French worship food. Irishmen are drinkers. And it seems like Swedish people, if they're not busy strangling honey buzzards, they're also running weird troll-like pharmacy shops. And to be honest, you know which of us hasn't gone to the pharmacist? for aspirin and corn plasters, and had to fight our way past all the jars of bottled kangaroo fetuses. I mean, I get that all the time when I go to the pharmacy, right? Right, right. Oh, so, so Swedish people are weird and ghoulish.
0: <laughs> at, at least in this corner of O'Brien's mind, where, where you know where they intersect with, especially where they intersect with Stephen Maturin, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So after he's picked up his laudanum with his side of coca leaves... He's got this layout of the town, and he knows where he's going. And it seems like he's learned from Jack. He's got a plan. Before he goes into action, he's going to scout out the area. He's going to see where it is that Diana lives, then come back into Stockholm, get shaved, cleaned up, and send a message ahead. It says he had no notion of turning up on her unannounced. And he's off then on his scouting trip. He makes his way through the rolling country, and he sees so many of these grey-backed crows that remind him of home, that remind him of Ireland. He turns on a narrow country lane, past those yellow flag irises and the swan, and his he horse's hoofs coming quickly. And Mike, we get a flashback. Stephen jumps over the ditch alongside the narrow lane to avoid the forthcoming horse-drawn carriage, and he catches hold of the fence on the bank, holding his parcel with his teeth. And O'Brien says, as the carriage came into sight, he saw that it was a phaeton with a pair of chestnuts. He means chestnut horses, I guess. Right, absolutely. And, and a moment later, his heart stood still. Diana was driving. Oh, Maturing, God love you, she cried, reining in hard. Oh, how happy I am to see you, my dear. And Mike, this, this is a, a lovely, a surprising moment for Stephen, but it's a lovely moment for us. This, there's a bit of a rhyme back to HMS Surprise, when they encountered each other in Bombay when she was, I think she was riding in a carriage or maybe it was on the back of an elephant. I can't remember. And he's surprised. Like this was his scouting mission, not his main go-see-Diana mission. But there she is in life. And Mike, I'm willing to buy the idea that her joy at seeing him is absolutely genuine. She's surprised and truly happy. Already, I think, in my heart, I'm thinking, maybe this is going to work out. She's happy to see him. She doesn't pull over and kind of spit on the ground in front of him.
0: Absolutely. So we're delighted. You know, it seems to be a great. You know, is this is this a meet cute? No, because they know each other. But yeah. it's still it's as a cute a meeting. Is certainly not what we were anticipating here. And and Diana even you know she kind of tells him how to leap back across this ditch that he's there uh, as he comes back. She catches him and helps with this parcel that he's had in his mouth, and she kisses him on both cheeks repeating again how happy she is to see him uh, and says, you know, get in so I can take you home. And I'm thinking, boy, this is this is great. And she looks at him and says, you know, that he hasn't changed at all. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, he's probably in the crumply clothes he's been wearing on the ship. again." (laughs) But he looks at her and he says, your complexion is infinitely improved. And he uses, Ian, you'll have to give us this beautiful French line here. You are a... You are a jeune fille en fleur. Yeah. This is, I mean, gosh, I I can't say it nearly as well (laughs) as Ian. But there's this great, you know, and and there's all these connotations of kind of a young girl in flower. This has been used in so many contexts here. And and I can't help but think about, uh, you know, this female flower association, you know, we went back to, uh, in the far side of the world, gather ye rosebuds as ye may. And so sometimes it's a little, I don't know, but O'Brien luckily interprets it himself at the end of the paragraph as he continues, you know, So Stephen is saying, you know, about how, you know, how infinitely improved her complexion is. And O'Brien says it was true. The cooler, damper northern climate and the Swedish diet had done wonders for her skin. Her particular black haired, dark blue eyed kind of beauty required an excellence of complexion to set it off at its best. And she was now in a finer bloom than he had ever seen. So there is the French for O'Brien.
1: She's in a finer bloom. Ah, And that has all sorts of connections that we might be going to pick up in later chapters. Let's wait and see. And there's another little uh, flash forward as well to Diana driving a coach. We've had a little bit in the past, and I think we're going to have a bit in the future, of Diana and her love of speed and her love of driving. The text says she drives at exhilarating speed. She has the wheel sometimes six inches from the ditch on one side. We have the horse playing the fool until they turn into the drive of Countess Tessin, who is Jagiellos' grandma. Now, by the way, Mike, there is there is a Count Tessin, a fairly famous Swedish politician and art collector who lived in the Stockholm area, died in around 1770. Maybe our countess here could have been Tessin's daughter or granddaughter. It so happens, listeners, that I am sitting in the wing of a hotel that is named the Tessin Wing, and I've been working in a meeting room that is called the Tessin Room this week. So that is the most bizarre, the (laughs) most bizarre set of coincidences from the Lubbers Hole outpost here in Sweden. Anyhow, they enter the drive of Jagiela's grandmother's place, Diana points to the older, smaller house, which Stephen assumes is a dower house, which is another word for a a small house set to one side in an estate, set aside for the widow of the estate owner. And this is Diana's simple home, and they go inside. She looks into one room, opens the door, and rapidly closes it again, saying, too squalid, before she takes Stephen into a small piano room. And there are a couple of really nice things that are details in this piano room. She says she mentions a china stove, and stoves made of china are a thing. Again, weird parallel. I had my breakfast this morning in a room with a china stove, and I'm going to tweet out a picture of it later on. Um, And a sofa and a lime tree through the window, and we might come back to that. She's really happy to have Stephen Matcher in there. She looks at him affectionately and says, there are so many things that we need to talk about. We haven't seen each other in so long, and Mike, here we get into it. She starts with Yagiello. and it's really telling for us, I think, that she gets straight into the topic of who's been doing what with whom else, with what other explanation, and she's the one who starts out with the explanation. This is Diana, I think, who would in many other ways have resisted the idea that she owed any man any explanation for any of her conduct. She gets right in with the word explanation and says she knows him, no explanation, but she doesn't want Stephen to think he's obligated to cut Yagiello's throat. And she's got a little bit of empathy for Yagiello. She says, poor little lamb, that would be too hard. And that doesn't sound like the language that a woman uses of her lover. That sounds like the language that she uses of a pitiful dunce. But anyhow, maybe I think that's telling us something about how she sees Yagiello. She, I'm sure, is remembering the fact that Stephen dueled and fought with and killed Canning, Diana's former lover in India, and... Um, She, Diana, had told Jagiello that she was putting herself under his protection just in order to go to Sweden, paying her own way, not as a bedfellow. And Jagiello, as she described the story, had protested that he felt like a brother to her and that there was no way he had carnal interest in her, had the greatest respect. But she describes him as smirking as men will smirk. And he finally believed her rebuff when she told him that she had sworn never to put it in any man's power to hurt her again. She tells Stephen not to look so devastated. Catastrophe, she calls it. She is heart whole again. And this really nice reconciliatory line from Diana to Stephen, I hope to God, she says, we are not such simpletons as to let it prevent us from being very, very fond of one another. Well, this is great. If, if I'm Stephen here, Mike, I'm thinking, yeah, OK, I'm happy to be promoted to the friend zone. Right, and, right. right. <laughs> Maybe I want like to get promoted at least one to higher, but let's let's go with it for now. So we learn she and Yagiello were friends again, although he tries to prevent her from going up in balloons. Um, Yagiello is about to marry, just as we had heard via Joseph Blaine, a pretty, although not very clever, young woman who dotes on him, which is probably the same for like half the female population of Europe at this point. And Diana had helped arrange the marriage. And this is a great thing for Stephen. He says he's happy to hear this and he's happy to get this confirmation, as we said, that what Sir Joseph had communicated turned out to be borne out in truth. So now she turns the conversation back towards Stephen. She says, where have you come from? And he quickly recaps for her the story that he's come with Jack and the surprise. Jack is on his way back from Riga for him. Jack sends his love along with Sophie. And Stephen took care to show that that was a plural sending of best wishes and love. And Diana recounts how upset she and Yagiella have been over the story of Jack and the trial and the pillory and asks if Jack had taken it hard. And Stephen recounts how cold and unsmiling and devoid of human contact Jack had been. But that since the victory at St. Martin and since becoming a member of parliament, he's doing better and is more likely to be reinstated. And Mike, I I really like this bringing together in the story here of Diana and Jack We've already said that Jack wishes the world could be more like his ideal of the Navy. And Diana here, I think, is saying that she understands men, but she wishes men, and Stephen in particular, could be more like her ideal of a man who is undemanding and undemonstrative and just lets her be how she wants to be. But I think maybe she's going to realize that she can't have the ideal man.
0: Right. And that never hurts her. Uh, Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And doesn't step on her independence. Yeah. Mm Yeah. Gosh. Well, Diana heads out of the room for a minute. She's going to check on Stephen's reindeer meat. She's a little concerned that that essentially that her maid may not be listened to by Young Yellow's surf. So another little interesting sort of thing running around in the background here. And so Stephen's left alone in this room and he's looking around and it starts to occur to him from everything he's seen so far that that Sir Joseph was probably right, that Diana was probably going up in balloons to make money. You know, he says that her life was far from wealth here. He says, you know, she's not in poverty, but she's, you know, she's certainly not doing well. And he's sitting there now trying to think, how can he speak to her when she returns in a persuasive and coherent way? He's very nervous. And, you know, Stephen does what Stephen often does when he's very, very nervous. He breaks the seal on his laudanum, just as Diana comes back in the room saying, ah, Stephen, you left this parcel in the carriage. It's the coca leaves. <laughs> um, you know, she says, he says, oh, you know, these are coca leaves. And she says, well, what are they? And he says, well, they make you feel clever and witty, just like the ones that I sent you from South America. And she said, well, you know, I'd like to feel clever and witty, but I never got them, you know, and they're, uh-huh. they're kind of saying how, you know, well, sometimes sort of things go amiss. And yeah, you know, absolutely. So Stephen kind of uses that as a lead-in to say, you know, did you ever get the letter I wrote you and sent because Andrew Ray, sent with Andrew Ray because he was going overland? And she says, surely did God match her? And you did not trust that infernal scrub Ray, did you? And Diana says, you know, she saw Ray a few times, but he gave her no letter and said that Stephen was enjoying his diving bell and... The other delights of Valletta. So you know we can well imagine that Ray was kind of helping stoke the rumors of Stephen's infidelity here, and certainly not delivering Stephen's explanation to Diana there. Well, in the midst of this, Countess Tessent, so you know the namesake for your for your room and, and your yeah. wing there, it walks in, and Diana introduces Stephen as Monsieur Metron. Ed Dominova. Ah, so mm-hmm. a friend of Yagielo's, as as O'Brien says, true, but disingenuous. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the countess, you know, who we understand to be a little older and kind of brain not completely clicking, leaves, you know, once she understands that Yagielo, who's supposed to be visiting, isn't coming till later after dinner. And Diana's talking to Stephen and she's saying that she's hoping that You know, when she gets older, she'll be able to keep up with the changing ideas about money. Um, You know, she's thinking about the Countess here, and she's telling Stephen how the Countess has really been frightened by her change, the change in her fortunes how she pinches every penny. She sent almost all her servants away. She charges Diana, what Diana calls a shocking great rent, and that she has leased out almost all of her fields, which really upset Diana because Diana had hoped to breed Arabian horses there. But all she's got is this tiny little paddock left for her own
1: use. So we're getting a, a, a clear picture now of what Diana's life has come to. And In Stephen's point of view, we're feeling a little bit of worry and sympathy and empathy for Diana. We also learned that in Diana's point of view, she's feeling a bit of worry on behalf of Stephen because just like women tend to for Stephen, she gets after him for his diet. She's worried that he's not eating. She wants to take him and and show him her enchanting little mare and her other horse after dinner and saying that if she had all the short grass at Jack's place... She'd have a score. She'd have 20 Arabians. And there's another little hint here that her life is not as circumstantial as she'd like it to be. Stephen's worried that maybe his agitation is affecting Diana. She's talking a great deal and that's often a sign that people are anxious. Um, she's talking a great deal about how she tried to give English lessons but the customers weren't there. She talks about the large sums that she's been paid to go up in balloons and she's gabbling away making inconsequential small talk Stephen, who really is struggling to master his emotions, can't make small talk. And he's kind of delighted when Diana finally disrupts the scene by knocking over the decanter that contains the last of her wine. And off she goes to make coffee. They drink their coffee on the terrace, and this enchanting little mare, this young horse of Diana's, comes over, puts her head over Diana's shoulders. I might at first I was thinking they're on the terrace, they must be looking out, but then as I read into this story Horses are in the house at this point. So we, we've had horses aboard ship in the cutting out expedition. Now we've got horses within the premises. So, you
0: know. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering when I read the same thing, Abe, is this, because we, we know in a few minutes the horse does literally walk through the door, but I'm wondering, is this a terrace maybe on the side of the house or right. anything? But the two of them are there. and And I think they do certainly make their way outside here in the midst of this somewhere because they're, you know, sitting there talking about you know, her paddock and everything. Yeah.
1: But, but I'm, quite, I'm quite tickled by the idea that she's bringing him a cup of coffee and she's standing there in the lounge. And as, as she's handing over the coffee, the course kind of comes and rests her chin on Diana's shoulder. And we get this great um, description of Diana's lustrous, great eyes looking at the mare and saying that the mare follows her like a dog, as we're supposing here, throughout the house. She wouldn't go up in a balloon, she says, with any other horse. Well, I know most people are choosy about which horses they go up in balloons with. So I think that's very sensible on Diana's part. And Stephen, who is always very willing, I think, to be pleased with a new horse that he meets, says he's never met a more beautiful and sympathetic creature. And O'Brien writes, the mare's beauty heightened Diana's, and the pair they made filled him, that's Stephen, with a troubled joy. And, And... I don't think we know clearly what the trouble is. Clearly he's troubled because he still doesn't know where he stands in the relationship with Diana. Maybe troubled also because he's having to combine his admiration for an animal and his passion for nature and creatures with his admiration and passion for Diana. And I don't think he quite knows where to look and what to be inspired by here. She shows him her other horse. She says, only a gelding. And is yet another offhand remark about males only a gelding, and they thoroughly condemn this paddock (laughs) together before they turn to talking about family, they talk about the rebuilding at the grapes in London and Mrs. Broad's new prosperity. And inside, Stephen, showing, I think, us as the reader the sign of just how disturbed and upset he is, he says he's going to retire so he can take his dose, and of course he means his dose of laudanum. Upstairs in his room... He's taking his first sip of the laudanum that he got from the pharmacist. And the first sip startles him. Remember, he's been familiar with the laudanum that he thinks he's been taking from the bottle administered by and adulterated by Padine. He thinks they must have used akvavit, which is a Scandinavian spirit distilled from potatoes or grains. But we know, of course, that this jolt is from Stephen drinking what was before brandy from some time and now actually drinking full-strength laudanum. He, he takes off his pants, as we all do when we're <laughs> sitting down to take the edge off. He takes off his pants, painfully unwraps the blue diamond that he had had strapped to himself with court plaster, cleans the diamond, and puts it in his pocket. And Mike, tell us a bit about this court plaster what what 's with the court and what 's with the plaster
0: right this is this is an amazing you know journey down a rabbit hole <laughs> <type> <laughs> that this it 's a sticking plaster uh, made by coating silk usually sometimes other materials on one side with this adhesive substance which is commonly a mixture of isinglass and glycerin it 's called plaster because it was originally used by the ladies at court. They would use this sort of uh, thing to stick over any abrasions or, uh, uh, you know, kind of areas of their face that weren't as beautiful as they would like them to. But it, it kind of went on to be used for cuts, for wounds, kind of a way of holding this thing together. But as I continue down this rabbit hole, eisenglass is what's called fish glue it's it's actually the air bladder of a sturgeon or, and a couple other fish as well that's kind of um turned into uh like a gelatin um yeah. and and then it, it's it's as i read some more and, and you you were much more familiar than i was about this found out that it's a clarifying agent for wine and beer so right, right. you know we're you know we're kind of you know, processing, making our wines and beers better using liquefied air bladders of fish, right? What, what's,
1: <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, this has been known about, as anybody who's ever brewed home-brewed beer or made home wine knows that you get this stuff from the brewing supply store called Finings, and you put it in, and it clarifies all the sediment and the murk out of it. And it is still made from an extract that's made from the swim bladder of sturgeons. I'm like, yeah, it gets me wondering. At some point in ancient history, Somebody was sitting there with a glass of cloudy beer, sitting next to his buddy with the, the dismembered remains of a sturgeon and has gone, hmm, this beer's a little cloudy. Yeah. Say, Sam, throw me over that swim bladder from that sturgeon there. Let's see how the, let's see, if that, let's see if that brings a sparkle to my brew here. Right. <sighs> but anyhow, it turns out it's part of court plaster as well. There you go. So, you know, fascinating. O'Brien. O- o- leave it to O'Brien here. Ah. <sighs> And now we get to the heart of the chapter, I think, at least for Stephen. It's not going completely well, though, because Stephen can feel quite rapidly now the effects of the dose coming on him. And Mike, as a reader, I'm thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. You're you're about to really dig into the depths of your conversation with Diana here, and you've just taken your first hit of industrial strength, fully amped up Lord Numb, and you're strung out, and you're a nervous wreck. I can only wonder how many more minutes you're going to stay. Compass Mentors here, anyhow. He decides he's going down the stairs. He's gonna stake his happiness, as O'Brien says, on the one throw. Before we get to the happiness point, we get this beautiful, beautiful throwback. He hears Diana playing the piano, but she gets a note wrong. And we learn that it's a piece of Hummel's that Sophie used to work at so hard long, long ago. And Mike, this is a really long callback, all the way back to post-Captain. We learned back in post-Captain that Sophie was trying to play the adagio of what we think is Hummel's D major sonata. That's how it was referred to in post-Captain. We get this uh, Stephen walking in and lifting this piece off the piano in post-Captain. We get Jack whistling under his breath the adagio, it said from Hummel's piece back in Post-Captain, Sophia's inept playing of it, Diana's rough, splendid dash, a jet of intense feeling. Sophia, This is on Jack's part. And a really, really clear memory, I think, of how the two romantic male leads, Stephen and Jack, had remembered the playing style of their female romantic leads, Diana and Sophie. And that even reminded me of a tweet from our old, old friend, Rachel McMillan, also known as Rachel McFestive these days on right. Twitter, who way back in the day, Rachel, thank you for helping us dig this out. <sighs> find the guy, she said on, on Twitter a while ago, find the guy who knows you by your touch on an untuned piano. From Rachel, a romantic, we'll take that. We'll take that moment. So that reference way back in post-captain has been surfaced again as Diana, is playing the piano, but she keeps getting this note wrong. And Stephen walks in. He picks up on this Hummel piece, this Adagio from the Sonata in D. And Mike, we're going to play a little bit of it, a little bit of audio of it now. Um, we had two choices here because because this was an early O'Brien musical reference. There is a Hummel Sonata in D, but it doesn't have an Adagio. There is a Hummel Sonata with an Adagio, but it happens to be in C. I really like the Larghetto from the D-Major Sonata. Let's just take a listen to what Sophie might have been trying to play originally and what Diana and Stephen are now listening to. And now, now that we've refreshed our memory of Hummel, Stephen picks up on the Hummel piece. And Mike, this is something that we've never heard him do with Diana, but he's done many times in his more more intimate moments with Jack. He starts improvising. Mm -hmm. He picks up on the Hummel piece and he moves through variations and improvises. He improvises also on the air of the Count's Contessa Perdono, Contessa Forgive Me, from the finale of Marriage of Figaro, which we heard about in our last episode. He doesn't trust himself to sing it. But he closes the piano and said, Diana, I have come to be forgiven.
0: I love this. There's kind of almost O'Brien's writing this little journey of their relationship, from as you say, in when they, you know, kind of first knew each other in post captain through these improvisations all the way through to this, you know, Contessa Perdona, this, you know, please forgive me, Countess. And there's also a little reference earlier as Stephen's walking down the stairs where Diana's referring to this note and saying, I've got to get this piano tune, this, on this one note, the whole thing falls apart. And, and Stephen's called it a Judas note. And again, I'm kind of thinking again about the relationship and this Judas note, whether that's Ray not delivering Stephen's explanation... In that letter, whether it's the Judas or the wrong note of thinking that, you know, Stephen had been unfaithful to begin with. But in any event, you know, we've got this beautiful setup by O'Brien. And then Diana responds, you know, after Stephen has asked for forgiveness, but my dear, you are forgiven. You have been this great while. I'm very fond of you. There's not a scrap of rancor or resentment or ill will in my heart. I swear. And Stephen says, well, that's that's (laughs) not quite what I meant, honey. And Diana says, oh, as for the rest, Stephen, our marriage was absurd in the first place. I should never make any kind of a wife for you. I love you dearly, but we could only wound one another completely unsuited, each as independent as a cat. And Stephen says, but I should ask nothing of you, but your company, I've made a great deal of prize money. I've inherited more. I I say this only because it means you could have room for your Arabians. You could have half the cur of Kildare. You could have a great stretch of English down And Diana says, Stephen, you know what I said to Yagielo? I will not put myself in any man's power. If I ever were to live with a man as his wife, it would be with you. There is no one else at all. I beg you to take that for my answer. And Stephen, I'm sure not at top form, but having the good character, responds, yeah, I will not be importunate, my dear, said Stephen. Oh, I wanted to say, Stephen, no, no, no. This is not the time. This is the time. This is not the time to
1: take your foot off the gas. Come on, come on,
0: come on. Keep keep asking. Keep convincing. Keep begging. Keep doing something here. Oh, my gosh.
1: (sighs) It's great. On on the one hand, it it took us the whole book to get to restoration for Jack. And we have this storyline of Stephen and Diana just rumbling, very low-key, very slow in the background. But in this chapter, do, do we dare to hope that Stephen and Diana might be back on solid ground again? She's saying... Mm, firm but not solid and we're sitting there as team steven going come on come on come on maybe we can get it over that line here maybe this is going to be huh i don't know maybe this is going to be the 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 happy end of steven's quest or maybe mike it's going to be the beginning of a whole new set of stories for Stephen and diana if we can just get through this moment
0: right well I don't know, maybe I, I, I that's taken a lot out of me and maybe maybe our listeners too. Should we take a little break? Think about you know what's going to happen with Team Steven and dear Diada. Yeah, I think so. And yeah. find ourselves a cup of this uh, lovely Swedish uh, liqueur. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So let's go get ourselves some aquavit, and we will be right back. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovershole. Welcome back. We hope that you're thoroughly restored with your glass of aquavit there. Um, you remember that Stephen and Diana were sitting in the room with the china stove and the piano. And you might remember at the lime tree out of the window. And O'Brien takes us back to that same visual anchor as we continue this conversation with Stephen, we hope, teetering on the brink of restoration with Diana. He looks out of the window at this perfect green of the lime tree for some time. And it is a little bit odd. This is Sweden. This is a relatively cold climate, as I'm learning this week. And we're thinking, That's limes, citrus, they're a Mediterranean tree. Surely lime trees can't grow in Sweden. O'Brien's too good a naturalist to miss that. However, there is a famous lime tree in this part of the world. It's not the kind of citrus. It's the European lime. It's called the tellia or the linden. In the US, you'd call it the basswood tree. In Britain and Ireland, you'd call it a lime tree, and it has a history throughout the world. It was sometimes called the holy lime in ancient times and was often the wood that was used for painting religious icons, I guess, because it's kind of close-grained. It was the sacred tree of a Baltic goddess, and women would pray at the lime tree for luck and fertility. There's a famous middle high german 12th century poem by Walter von der Vogelweide called Unter den Linden among the lime trees and there's a street that goes through the middle of berlin called Unter den Linden among the lime trees and this poem by von der Vogelweide is about two lovers who laid together under the tree believing that no one must ever know of their affair and i mike surely again not a coincidence that this association with the lime tree becomes front and center as Stephen is thinking about his relationship here with Diana.
0: Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. You know, I'm trying to remember that it seems like you know, it says that Stephen turns from the lime tree. And I'm thinking that O'Brien says that it, uh, the phrase that comes to mind is sort of an artificial smile. But I'm sure he didn't yeah. say that. But it's something like that. and And he asked Diana if she'd like to hear about a really vivid dream that he'd had about ballooning the night before. And, and interestingly, she says, well, was it a fire balloon or an air balloon? <laughs> and, and we're starting to get kind of this back and forth between Stephen, who seems to have this really big symbolic dream, and Diana, who's kind of back to practical details a little bit here. And yeah. Stephen says, well, you know, I, I, I think it was an air balloon because I don't remember any fire. And he tells her in great detail, and this is one of these great cinematic passages about yeah. going up through the clouds into what O'Brien calls unbelievably pure and very dark sky. And and I think Diana, thinking about her own ballooning experiences, is saying, you know, oh, yes, yes. And Stephen says, you know, I've never been up, but I talked to a man who had, but a lot of his dream had kind of come from this guy's account, but then the dream had more than that. It had this extraordinary intensification of living, the palpable depth of the universal silence, and the very great awareness of the light and color of this other world, an otherness that was made all the stronger because through an occasional gap in the clouds, our ordinary world could be seen with silver rivers very, very far below and roads distinct. But then as Stephen is telling this, he recounts how that, that kind of rivers and roads, they turn into rock and ice. And he says that mingles with his, his earlier delight is, in O'Brien's word, an undefined sense of dread as huge as the sky itself. It was not merely a fear of being destroyed, but worse, perhaps that of being holy and entirely lost body and soul. So, Stephen is just kind of, you know, I'm kind of like, oh. And Diane says, oh, how did it end? And Stephen says, it did not end at all. There was Jack roaring out about the boat that was alongside. So, you know, Stephen was woken up in the middle of this dream. So, you know, ah. Oh. I'm thinking, you know, we've gone from this, you know, this holy tree of lovers and luck and fertility and goddesses, and 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 you know, kind of come through this splendor to being wholly lost body and soul. In other words, in my mind, you know, this is a dream of Stephen kind of losing Diana. Yeah. And, and and kind of a continuation of this sense of dread building around this trip to Sweden to see Diana and, and somehow these balloons that have followed us all the way through this book here. But like Stephen's dream. We don't know how it
1: ends yet. No. And his relationship with Diana, we don't know how that ends yet either. (sighs) So Diana sweeps past all the symbolic (laughs) meanings, and she wants to get on, like you said, Mike, to talking about the immediate, the tangible. She's becoming a bit more remote and defiant. She says, well, Jagiello told me stories about people being swept away in balloons, perished with cold, starved never seen again but she goes up in an air balloon she says with an anchor a long rope and a valve to let the gas out and to come down again and she's confident in her balloon the way that stephen was confident in his diving bell right right (laughs) with a little valve to let the gas out and she says that she always has gustav with her who's experienced very experienced and they never go far And gustav is that you know otherwise unnamed uh you know servant slash sidekick that she has for these balloon trips And Stephen says that he wasn't doing anything other than just telling her the dream. He he doesn't want to see it as a lecture or a parable or an attempt to put her off, but he had been deeply impressed by the ballooning that he'd experienced through this dream. He'd loved the color, the noble redness of the balloon. And this really does sound like a drug dream, doesn't it? He says his account to her was, by his standards, pitifully bold, not really touching the essence of ballooning, as, again, he had experienced it in the dream. But he told this story... To put a space between their last topic of conversation, where he had broached the idea of getting together and she said, if I ever live with a man and his wife as his wife, it'll be you, to the next topic. And he wants to emphasize the total independence of the two topics because he's about to land his own big play here. He reminds her that Danglars, the friend of Lamotte, had promised to send her great diamond back and he takes it out and gives it to her, saying that a messenger had brought it after Jack's trial. And the text says, He had never seen her lose her composure to such a degree. As he passed the stone, naked in the blaze of the sun, her face showed doubt, amazement, delight, and even a kind of fear before dissolving entirely as she burst into tears. He turns away so that she can cry and blow her nose and get some composure back. And he looks back at her again and he sees that her pupils are so dilated that her eyes look black. And she says she'd never thought to see it again. She loved it sinfully, and still does. She says, I cannot tell you how grateful I am. Oh, and I was so odiously unkind to you. Stephen, forgive me. And Mike, we've, we've gone from Stephen invoking the Count's perdono to getting the same back. Right from Diana, which is quite a long way. This is quite a long way. Team Steven, I think, are all on their feet cheering at this point. Right, absolutely. And
0: I kind of can't help but giggle, just like O'Brien would. You know, right at this moment, there's this gaggle of voices outside. Somebody's calling Diana's name. The door opens. Diana's mayor, <laughs> of course, walks in the front door, followed moments later by Yagello and his fiance. And Yagello sees Stephen's back and and he recognizes him. And at first, you know, he's got this look of astonished delight, but then it immediately turns to extreme reserve. You know, Yagella is like, (laughs) uh-oh. Yeah, I I brought his wife to Sweden here, and I remember this guy. (laughs) He's run through more people than I care to remember. But Stephen comes over takes his hand affectionately, thanks him for his kindness to Diana, and congratulates him on his upcoming marriage and his promotion. Stephen, you know, always a man to kind of spot in details like that, sees by his mauve coat and his gold spurs that Yagiello is now a colonel.
1: Uh, phew. We're, I guess we're all a bit relieved for Yagiello. At least, you know, he's still, he's still got all of his limbs intact as we get through this scene. <laughs> right. And... Um, while we've got one kind of comic character arriving on the scene, a comic character gets taken away as Diana leads the horse off, does, does what she can with her blubbering face, as it's described. She's not usually a woman who cries easily, and she tries to entertain the guests. And that's difficult, since Yagiello's fiance called Lovisa, is young, is completely in awe of Diana, speaks very poor French, which is the only common language between the four of them, And Lovisa herself also senses that things are not entirely easy in the room. I don't know where she gets that idea from. Um, Jagiello also senses something. And he senses that his usual prattle is going to be out of place. So he doesn't know what to do or say. And Stephen is his usual quiet self after he said a few civil things to Lovisa. Uh, And then perceiving that Diana is telling Jagiello something about Jack in Swedish. And we can only guess that. She's catching Yag Yellow up on the gossip about Jack's seat in Parliament and his restoration hoped for and all the rest of it. Mike, we we get back into first-person mode with Stephen for a moment because we do learn, as as we were expecting, that (laughs) the laudanum circulating through his system is starting to have its effect. Stephen's been feeling strange for quite a time now. He's not sure why. He attributes it to the intensity of the emotion, especially the emotion of failure as he sees it. He's thinking about what it was like being hit in battle and how you're sometimes not sure what it was that had hit you whether it was a, a a blade or a point or a ball or a splinter and you don't know how serious it is until later when you can examine the wound and i think he's thinking he needs to step away and examine his emotional wound a little bit here he'd really like the aguielos to go away so he can take his second dose uh, yeah right and then walk back to stockholm he thinks with at least the appearance. Of some equanimity. And Diana, I think, is kind of smartly playing the, playing the room here a little bit. She says, okay, Diana, your grandmother stopped by. She suggests that you go and see her before she tries to walk over again. They appear to be leaving, but Lovisa, who's a little bit nervous and a bit of a chatterbox, won't stop talking with Diana in Swedish about her wedding clothes. And Stephen is just edging away and edging away. He keeps walking backwards until he gets to the stairs. Where he bows and takes his leave, heading on up the stairs. now, Mike, this is a key moment for Stephen here.
0: Stephen's, as you said ian, he's, he's, he's kind of you know reeling just a little bit, although you know Diana says she 's treated him poorly, she certainly hasn't given him any indication that she 's changed her mind about anything, and he wants to get upstairs and take another dose, which he does. And again, he's really surprised by the strength of this. And it, for the first time, it occurs to him that maybe it's not what it's mixed with. Maybe it's the amount of opium. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and then he's kind of thinking further. And this is kind of his scientific rational mind going, no, you know, those amounts usually don't vary from country to country. So he's, you know, he's kind of thinking about this, but he, you know, he, he takes his dose. He goes back downstairs because the company's gone. And, and Diana's saying how glad she is that they're gone um, and that, you know, she didn't appreciate all the fiancés chattering on at the very end. But she's at least glad that Yagiello hadn't said anything to her, uh, you know, against ballooning, even though she's going up again this Saturday. And Stephen's like, oh, Saturday. Well, can I come along? And she says, sure you can. (laughs) It's the red balloon. And so it's kind of interesting. You know, We're going to start seeing this cadence of, was it a gas balloon or a fire balloon in your dream? It's a gas balloon. Oh, I'm in a gas balloon. Oh, what are you going up? I'm going in a red balloon. Oh, it was this vivid red balloon in Stephen's dream. So hang on to that because we keep hitting this. And she says, you know, this red balloon has plenty of room. So I guess for Stephen, for the horse, for Diana. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, she asked Stephen if he'd like to see the balloon because they're already filling it for the flight on Saturday. And and absolutely, he's delighted to go see it. We know that Stephen's been thinking about balloons for quite some time here.
1: Yeah. And we get a little diversion into practical balloon chemistry for 19th century aeronauts. Just a little, if you're ever not sure about how to make a a hydrogen balloon, Diana educates us that you can mix iron filings and vitriol, which is sulfuric acid, concentrated sulfuric acid, and you get a bunch of things, including hydrogen. The balloon, she says, is at the foundry where what she calls this inflammable air, which is hydrogen, where this is being created and pumped into the balloon. And... For those of you who are trying to keep track of the ins and the outs here, inflammable and flammable are the same thing. Inflammable in this context doesn't mean not flammable. It means you can flammable it. It uses the in prefix meaning into. So it kind of intensifies the meaning. And maybe that's a deliberate thing by O'Brien. We these days say flammable, but inflammable means really easily set on fire. And O'Brien's really kind of intensifying, I think, our anticipation that there's there's some dread, there's some danger associated with this dangerous gas and with the balloon and with the trip awaiting Stephen and Diana here.
0: Well, Diana notes that Stephen's not acting quite right. And and she asks if he's okay, you know, before they head out to climb this tall tower from which they can see the foundry and the balloon. And Stephen says, oh, no, no, no. It's just that, you know, I was wakened in my sleep before dawn, but I'm certainly capable of climbing a tower. Um, Now, we suspect that it has nothing to do with being awakened at dawn. We suspect (laughs) this is the effect of two full doses of, you know, industrial-strength laudanum after Stephen had effectively been weaned off of it by Padine's dilutions. So as they begin to go up this tower, they've walked over to it, they're climbing the tower— I had to tell Stephen to keep to the wall side because when they get about halfway up, there's no railing. Um, so they go up and up and up. They finally get to what they describe as a dwarfish door at the top, and they step out. So they've stepped out from this darkness into this very bright light, and they're very high up. And, and O'Brien gives us this beautiful description about, yeah. you know, going over the eastern parapet, and Stephen sees the old city of Stockholm. You know, and Hannah and thinks for a minute, and she's been carrying the Blue Peter. She puts it away, you know, wraps it in her handkerchief, and she takes out the telescope. Um, that she's brought along with her. And she trains the telescope on the chimneys. I think she's kind of getting it lined up. She hands it to Stephen, tells him to look to the left of the smoking chimney, and there he'll see the upper half of the great red balloon. Stephen spots it, says, God bless it, and hands the telescope back to Diana.
1: Hmm. (laughs) Now, she says, "Mm, I'm I'm not sure about this. Maybe we should just cool things off here. She says... I think we should go down and have a cup of tea, studying his face. You look like whitey-brown paper. You go first and I will follow. I know just where to find the bolts. Stephen opened the door, said something indistinct about Saturday, and pitched headlong into the void. Whoa! (sighs) Ah... I don't know what the right phrase is here, Mike. It's not a cliffhanger. It's a stair faller. <laughs> <laughs>
0: not too true. So we're halfway through the last chapter of the letter of Mark. And, you know, we just had this amazing back and forth with Stephen and Diana. And bam, we know he's very, very high up. He can see, you know, the city and the foundry that's a mile off here. And he's, you know, he's pitched into the darkness, all drugged up. Yeah. So, And, you know, from what Diane had said about there being no railing at that length, we assume he's gone all the way down the middle of this tower.
1: Yeah. Uh, One of the things we know about people who have falls when they're drunk or wasted is that they hopefully are kind of relaxed and resilient when they get to the bottom. But all the way to the bottom of the stairs, who knows? This sounds like the biggest fall that I think, yeah, he's fallen down hatchways before. Right. Um, He's tripped over things. Uh, but I think this is the biggest fall he's had yet. Yeah, now, it,
0: I, I, do, I don't suppose you know that all this lightning is going to make him higher than
1: the tower. No. yeah sorry. <laughs> well, there's, there, are, there are height metaphors all over this, aren't there? Right, right. <laughs> Mike, this is cruel. Halfway through the final chapter, we were expecting a roller coaster ride to the end. We were expecting, you know, cantering downhill to Stephen and Diana and Jack and Sweden and song and dance and happy days. But half a chapter before the end, we've got Stephen back in mortal danger and still teetering on the brink of knowing really for sure where he lies with Diana. There's so much for us to talk about in this chapter. We've got another whole half a chapter. Mike, we've also got a very special interview guest for next episode.
0: Yeah, I think this is going to be a Christmas present come early for all of us who've been reading the O'Brien books for a long time or have an appreciation for their covers, to give a little hint here.
1: I think you're going to love the special guest that we have for us next time. So, Mike, with that in mind, with lots of uncertainty still here about Stephen and Diana and the Fall and the Laudanum and Padine and Sweden and Riga and Stockholm, there's only one thing for it. What do you say next time to just one more half of one more chapter of Patrick O'Brien? With all of my whole heart. you know, which of us hasn't gone to the pharmacist for aspirin and corn plasters and had to fight our way past all the jars (laughs) of bottled kangaroo fetuses. I mean, I get that all the time when I go to the pharmacy, right?